Good morning, church. I uh, just want to, from my side, thank you for singing so well. It's a joy, really, to sing in this church with you all. As you turn to James chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 13 to 17. I'm going to read that passage in a little bit. I'm going to open in a word of prayer now. Our Father, Lord, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for this book. We thank you for the way that you have been shaping your church and molding our hearts through this word. Lord, we thank you for the truth that all of the power of this moment lies in you and in your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you use the weakness of the preacher, the weakness of his life, to do an amazing work in your people. All the glory goes to you. And so we pray that you would do that work again today. Amen. In an October 2000 article for Sports Illustrated, uh, titled, Clichés Aren't Everything, they're the only thing in the world of sports, at least. Writer Steve Russian pokes fun at the sometimes ridiculous use of cliches in sports analysis conversation. He writes this article from the perspective of a coach speaking to his team, trying to give them a pep talk. Men, if we play our game, bring our A game, take it one game at a time. Stick to the game plan. Stay within ourselves. Dictate the tempo. Impose our will. Give 110%. Take it to another level. Take the crowd out, out of the game. Make something happen. Step up our intensity. Execute, focus, convert, and leave it all on the floor. It's anybody's ball game. But there's no tomorrow. Our backs are against the wall. It's crunch time, gut check time, do or die, to click, to gel, to fire on all cylinders. We'll need good chemistry, and you can't teach that. So I'm juggling the lineup, making wholesale changes, trying to light a fire under you, put a fire in your belly, fire you up, because those other guys won't roll over, they won't lay down, they can flat out play, they're on fire. They're peaking at the right time. They've got ice water in their veins. My hat's off to them. You've got to hand it to them. They feed off the pressure. They own us. They're hungry. They'll take you to school. They'll eat your lunch. They'll make you pay. I'd pay to see them play, even though they put their pants on one leg at a time, same as we do. Although some of you couldn't play dead, couldn't play a radio, couldn't hit sand if you fell off a camel, We've been here before. We match up well. We know how to win. And we're in it to win it. And we're all in this together. Because there's no I in team. So let's just go out there and have some fun. If you've ever watched any sports game with commentary on, or any halftime analysis, or had any talk around the bra fire about sports, you know that a primary form of communication when you're talking about sports is the use of cliches. 
A cliche is a phrase that loses its impact and becomes commonplace through prolonged overuse. Well, this doesn't only happen in the world of sports. It can happen with the truths of Scripture as well. Biblical truths and phrases can lose their impact through casual use or long-term careless use. There is at least one phrase from this week's passage that is used so regularly in Christian conversation that we might miss the impact that James wants us to feel as we read this text. So let's read together now. See if you can pick up the phrase. Let's listen with open ears to God's Word. James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You picked up the phrase there, didn't you? If the Lord wills. Lord willing, we so often say, Dear Valente is the the Latin phrase. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying those words. I believe it's a good reminder from time to time to say, Lord willing. We see Paul many times when he's speaking about his missionary work and what he wants to do, his plans around the world. He uses the phrase, if the Lord wills. But it's not, just re- it's not really just a matter of the words, is it? What truly matters, what James is after, is what's in our hearts when we speak about what we plan to do where we plan to go, and how we plan to live our lives. In chapter 4, James has been speaking to the church about the importance of humility, how pride is damaging. It's damaging in our lives and damaging in the church. When people's hearts are divided before God, not humble before God, problems will abound. And James calls in this chapter for humble repentance. Draw near to God, he said, And God will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. In chapter 4 verses 11 and 12, last time out, He made the point, you slander and you judge, speaking about one another without any reference to the existence of God. You forget yourself and you place yourself as judge over one another. Well, now in this passage, he continues in the theme of humility. He addresses humility and pride in reference to the way we see our lives and make our plans and go about the everyday business of our lives. And the question asked of us is this, do we live our lives without reference to God? Do we forget ourselves and place ourselves as sovereign? Dio Valente, Lord willing. It's a principle for all of life that we are to guard from becoming merely cliche. It's more than mere words. Kent Hughes says, God willing is the posture of a burning heart. I am not sovereign over my life. God is. James today wants to help us avoid the delusional trap of self-sovereignty, of self-sufficiency. And so I'm going to unpack this passage asking three questions. I believe it asks three questions of us today. And the first is this. Number one, 
Do you see your life in the light of eternity? Do you view your life in the light of eternity? James here gives us a little glimpse into business in the first century AD. Listen again to the situation that he describes in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He turns attention in this passage and in the passage to come to the wealthier in the community. There are these merchants here planning a a business trip and they have it all mapped out, all figured out. The when, today or tomorrow, the where, we'll go to such and such a town. The how long, we're going to spend a year there. And the what, we're going to trade there. And they even have the outcome figured out and make a profit. That's what we're going to do. They speak boldly and confidently. And you read verse 13 and you think, how despicable and terrible for them to be speaking in this way. Do you? No, that's not what you think, right? There's no hint in their words of any kind of shadiness to this business practice. No suggestion that they are going to go and cheat anyone. What they say seems entirely normal. Just making plans for a business venture like any normal plans that we might make. And we mustn't misinterpret James when we come to this passage. He's not attacking the making of plans, nor against the desire here even to engage in money-making business ventures. He's not saying it's a sin to have a a five-year strategy, for example, or to take out insurance policies or to plan for your retirement. The Bible teaches that planning is good. Proverbs actually commends the ant for gathering food in summer so that there'd be a guarantee of supply in the winter. Godly leaders lead with a a God-given sense of mission. Paul planned, we see it throughout the book of Acts, he planned his mission trips with a desire to take the gospel to places where Christ's name had never been heard. Lack of planning actually can be a sign of laziness or lack of care for for your legacy or lack of care whether or not you are wasting your life. Living with an eternal perspective means making plans that you hope will have an eternal impact. So it's not planning that James condemns, but rather a kind of planning in this passage. Planning on the one hand that only has the motivation tied to this world and to the enjoyment of this world. Or planning as well that betrays an arrogance in our own ability to determine and to secure the future that we desire. What is wrong with what the merchants are saying is not so much what they're saying, but rather what they're not saying. Something that's lacking in their hearts. Some things that they aren't taking into account. Firstly, in their words, there's no hint that they're taking into account the uncertainty of life, James points to. He says, you say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit, yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring, right? I mean, look back over the last two years. Can't we all say that? Pandemics, riots and floods. We look back and there's probably a lot of things that we would change over uh, concerning what happened in the last couple years. And yet all of these things have happened Uh, Also with grace, God getting our attention 
We need to realize when we look back at what's happened and know if there's anybody who has control over the future, it certainly isn't me. It certainly isn't me. I don't have any control over what happens tomorrow. If you've ever lost someone suddenly, you have been staggered by the truth of this passage. One minute you can be making plans and the next they lie forgotten on the floor at your side. There isn't a person in this room whose whole world can't change in a moment. The buzzing of the phone in your pockets. One moment on the road home. See, it's not just the uncertainty of life that these merchants weren't taking into account. It's also the, the brevity of life. It's not just that you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know if tomorrow is going to come for you. What is your life? Verse 14. For you are a mist. A mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. My, my wife loves the natural mistiness of Hillcrest. You can wake up in the morning and you feel like you're in the, the moors in England. But then the sun will come out by 9 o'clock. Everything changes and it burns through the mist so quickly. We live in waterfall and sometimes we drive up the gorge and you can see the mist actually rising and disappearing right in front of your eyes. The word that James uses here can also mean smoke or even vapor. Even less substantial than the morning mist that is here for a couple hours and then gone. Your life is like, it's like the bright smoke that rises and vanishes immediately in front of your eyes. It's nothing more than your warm breath on a cold winter morning run. It's nothing more than the wispy steam that comes rising out of your cup of coffee in the morning. Alec Matias says in his commentary, We may take tomorrow for granted, thinking of it, as a mark on the rim of time's wheel, coming on inevitably as the circling years proceed. But the, in the Bible, the years do not circle. They go in a straight line from eternity to eternity. And on that line, we receive another day, neither by natural necessity, nor by mechanical law, nor by right, nor by courtesy of nature, but only by the covenanted mercies of God. The very existence of tomorrow is as much part of our dependence on Him as is our life itself and our ability. See, finally, the real problem with what the merchants are saying in this passage, the real problem with their speech is it reveals a heart that speaks without reference to God, without reference to any need, without reference to dependence upon Him for another day, let alone the future that they desire to create. It's not enough just to acknowledge the uncertainty of life and the brevity of life. You don't even have to be religious to do that, right? This verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's not only a cliche in the church, that's a cliche in the world. The world gets it. The world understands the, that anything can happen and that life is short. But even that realization doesn't guarantee wisdom. It doesn't mean that the world honors God. It doesn't mean that you turn in dependence upon Him and see things from an eternal perspective. The world has solutions to the uncertainty and the brevity of life. On the one hand, they have nihilism. There's no meaning except in the meaning that you create. Whatever you want to make of life. Or hedonism. You only live once, right? Or to borrow the language of Scripture, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. People live life as if this is all there is. 
It's all about the here and now. How much comfort and power, control and affluence and pleasure I can acquire right now. The merchant's problem is that their plans had no reference to God who says what you do now matters into eternity. What you do now matters for then. So in the church, we have to live with this perspective. My obedience to God today matters. We are so often blinded by sin that we, we can't see it. We don't understand how that obedience matters even into tomorrow, let alone into eternity. Paul warns Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that there's no other foundation to build your life upon that really matters apart from Christ himself. Paul says what you build on is going to be tested. On that final day, it's going to be tested by fire. When you stand before God, what is going to last? What is going to last and, and continue through that testing? Is Christ the foundation upon which you are building your life today? Is it the foundation upon which you raise your families and go about your career and speak to your co-workers and spend your money, His money, and enjoy your leisure and dwell in community with your church? Young people, those of you standing on the pre precipice of beginning your adult life, the younger you are, the more invincible life can feel. But I promise you it's going to go by so quickly. Breathtaking pace. Before you know it, your 20s are going to be gone. Your 30s are going to be gone. What is the ground upon which you stand? Are you standing today on Christ, the solid rock? Or are you standing on your own wisdom, your own passion, your own ability? Sinking sand. Oh, how I pray that God would grant all of us, but I feel especially the young people today, a view of forever, an eternal perspective. None of what we do here makes sense without it. None of the Christian life makes sense without it. None of Christ's commands or His grace or the call to sacrifice, the call to holiness, the call to stewardship. It doesn't make sense unless you have an eternal perspective. Someone has said, and I don't know if this is true, I wasn't able to verify this, but when a Byzantine emperor was crowned at Constantinople, the royal mason would come and lay slabs of marble stone in front of the emperor, and on his coronation day, he was to choose for himself that day his tombstone. They thought it was wise to remind him of his funeral at his coronation. Parents, I think we should revive this practice. When you help your kids to choose a, a college, pick out a coffin for them at the same time. Matthew 16, verse 19 and 20, Jesus says to us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure, treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where does your heart lie this morning? Are you living your life with an awareness of the uncertainty and the brevity of life? And are you living in light of eternity? Number two, do you make your plans with a submissive heart? Do you make plans with a submissive heart? When God created man, 
He gave the mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And what was man's response? It was to forget the commission of God. That's what we constantly do, right? They settled at Babel and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we'd be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It was planning without reference to God's will, without dependence upon God. What we care about is a name for ourselves, the spirit of the people of Babel is the spirit of our age, the same heart, the same arrogant self-reliance is what marks the world today. Our world is anxiously and actively seeking the removal of God from all of its hopes and its plans for the future. The key to fix our problems lies in us, we're told. The benevolence of the human soul, education, technological advancement, Human wisdom, this is where we're going to find all the answers. We, we need look no further than the material world to find the answers that we crave to the meaning of existence. I did a, a PGCE, a postgraduate certificate in education at UNISA, and it was a frustrating experience for me. We're teaching our teachers this, that morality and values must form the heart of our education. Even in our public schools, this is what's being taught. Values-based education. One of the roles of the educator enshrined in the curriculum is the role of, they call it, pastoral caregiver. Saying that's what you are as an educator. And to a degree, that is true because you have influence over the children in your classroom. The reason for this drive is the realization of the brokenness of society, the reality of how broken it is. But the hope that is given is humanity, not God. The foundation for education is the Constitution, popular psychology, not the Bible. It's the spirit of Babel, and it's all around us. James says in 4.16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And James knows that the sin nature will pull us towards self-sufficiency and the, the self-sovereignty that the world takes for granted. The church has to assume a different posture a posture of right humility before God. So having highlighted the incorrect speech of the merchants, James is going to say, this is what you ought to say. Verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If He wills, we'll carry on living and do this or that. Again, it's more than about mere words. James isn't saying that any time you have a plan and you speak your plan, you have to tack on the words, Lord willing, at the end of that plan. But there's nothing wrong as well with saying that. It's a good reminder at times. What James is getting at you, though, is the heart behind your planning and your doing. Doug Moo in his commentary says, James wants us to adopt the attitude. Adopt the attitude expressed by the words as a fixed perspective from which to view all of life. A fixed perspective from which to view all of life. James is saying there is one right vantage point from which to really see your life in truth and in clarity, and that's through and under the sovereignty of God. Here's a couple principles I think that we can pull out from what James is saying here. Firstly, God's good pleasure must drive my planning. God's good pleasure has to drive what I plan to do. There is purpose. 
grand and meaningful and intentional behind everything that God does. And everything He does, He accomplishes. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10, He says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is our God. Everything He plans to do, He does. And James here is reminding us, if you wake up to see another day, it's only by God's good pleasure, only because He wills it, only because of His good purposes. And so how foolish, isn't it, to go along your day with no reference for Him, no thought for Him, with what He's doing in the world. It's God's good pleasure that should fuel our plans. His sovereign purposes stand above all things. Everything we therefore desire, all the outcomes that we desire in our life, ought to line up with what God wants, what God desires, what God is doing for His glory. Planning is dangerously prideful when the desired outcomes that we imagine have nothing to do with that, nothing to do with His desire for your life. Humble planning says this, this is God's word and this is what it reveals God to be like. This is what it says about me. And so what does that mean for the the way I live my life today, for the places I go, for the things that I say? It's foolish. It's wasteful to live life approaching your weekly planner saying, okay, here's Sunday. Sunday belongs to God. Monday through Saturday, they belong to me. Faith doesn't get its own compartmentalized box in your life. Faith must pervade everything that you do. That's been the point of James, right? Kent Hughes in his commentary says this, So pervasive is our culture's arrogant independence of God that even many Christians, many Christians attend church, marry, choose their vocations, have children, buy and sell homes, expand their portfolios, and numbly ride the currents of culture without substantial reference to the will of God. More Christians never seriously pray about God's will regarding their vocation, family, direction, or entertainments than actually seek God's will. They change Augustine's love God Remember that phrase, love God and do as you please. They change that to do as you please and say that you love God. You understand the difference, right? Augustine was saying, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then go into the world and do exactly what you want because what you're going to be doing is pleasing to God because that's what you want to do. It's saying, I love God, trust His wisdom, I need Him for every hour, so what I do will... What I'm pleased to do is what's pleasing to Him. It's that versus, you know, I'm basically coasting through life, doing whatever I want. And yes, I'll, I'll sing the songs from time to time, and I'll do the Sunday thing from time to time. I'll sprinkle a little Christianity over my life here and there. No, God wants your whole heart and your every day. Your weekly planner belongs to Him. Second principle to draw out from here, this part is, my plans must be interruptible. Are your plans interruptible? There is a lot of danger in the words, if the Lord wills. There's a lot of danger in those words. There's a sacrifice inherent that makes it very, very difficult for us to say them and mean them with all our hearts. We don't want to have to say them. 
What if there's something that I want that he doesn't will? What if there's something that he wills that I'd rather not have to go through? Has anyone been there before? Often we have plans for how we want life to go, plans that seem good even, plans that we have that we believe will honor God, and God closes doors. He interrupts. He pulls the carpet out from underneath us. Although what tomorrow brings is something that we would never have chosen for ourselves, and we don't know why things have turned out the way that they have. If we're not careful... Disappointment in the Christian's life can lead and often does lead to discontentment, even grumbling and complaining against God, frustration, even anger. Or maybe our ruined plans cause us to question His, begin to question His promises, even question our faith. How should we respond to broken dreams and ruined plans? How do you respond when you're today is the tomorrow that you feared yesterday. Remember what Spurgeon said, don't forget in the dark what you knew in the light, right? Listen to the prayer of David, Psalm 25, 1 to 3. This is what we pray when we're facing disappointment. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Even in this, I'm waiting for you. We should remember the words of our Savior. Remember Gethsemane. James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Well, those words were not true for him on that evening. They weren't true for Jesus in Gethsemane. He knew exactly what tomorrow would bring. He knew in the garden what the cross would mean in a way that we will never understand. There's a City of Light song that I love that I hope we'll learn sometime. And one of the verses goes like this. How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. The fearful weight of true obedience, it was held by him alone. What wondrous faith to bear that cross. To bear my sin, what wondrous love. My hope was sure when there my Savior prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Our Savior walked willingly into the most horrific tomorrow imaginable. The perfect, pure Son of God bore the sin of men and the wrath of God. And He forever threw that anchored our hope in Him. Our hope for tomorrow is anchored in Him. If you're facing that disappointment that might lead to discontentment today, stop your heart and remember what your Savior prayed. Not my will, but yours be done. Now those words, that's too great a risk for many in the pursuit of their happiness. But for those who have humbled themselves before God, they are words that bring the sweetest and most comforting reassurance. They are words spoken in trust. The trust that says, what happens? What happens in my life? Everything that happens in my life is the plan of a better sovereign. A better sovereign than I could ever be. There are words spoken in solidarity, like the words that Paul spoke. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship even of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Are you willing to submit your plans to the Father's goodwill? 
to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Young people, would you pray those words? Father, your kingdom come, your will be done in my 20s as it is in heaven. Students, would you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in my studies, in my career, in my academic life. Husbands and wives, would you pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done in my marriage as it is in heaven. Parents, your kingdom come, your will be done in my family as it is in heaven. Workers, would you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in my job as it is in heaven. And as a church, would we pray, oh Father, as we sing here so often, use my ransom life in any way you choose. Whatever you have, whatever you choose, it's okay with me. I'm resting because I'm in your hands. Do you see your life in the light of eternity? Do you make your plans with a submissive heart? Number three, do you cling to grace for a fruitful life? Do you cling to grace for a fruitful life? Now I'm asking this question because of the final line here in chapter 4. I believe this is a solemn reminder from James. Verse 18 he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now maybe you don't really see, if you can leave the question up there, you don't see the connection between my question and the verse. Uh, we first need to ask why. I think, why is James saying what he says in this verse? It is a difficult verse to understand in context. Scholars debate how it's even connected to the passage. Some think it's just a, a dangling phrase that, that James has made, and yet he uses the word so, which implies connection. He's not starting a new thought here. This must be connected to the passage that we've already looked at. This is my take, and you can judge for yourself. James has been talking about problems caused by the life of pride and the effects of pride on the church. And he's pointed to the church to its only hope. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now in verses 13 to 17, he addresses the pride of self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency in how we view our lives and how we make our plans. And I believe it's this. I think this is what James is getting at. It's a pride special kind of pride that can live for self and then turn around and say, but you know what? I obey God's commands. I, I give to the church. I'm faithful to my wife. I attend when I can. It's a certain kind of pride that lives for self, but then sees obedience as just a list to, to check off and sin as a list of things to avoid. Check the boxes and you're okay. It's the heart of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. He comes to Christ and he comes with a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. As he's speaking, the young man's getting excited. Do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he says, yes, I've kept all of these since my youth. Jesus has him right where he wants him because he's about to reveal something else about his heart, right? You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And the word says he went away very sorrowful. The cost that Jesus demanded was too great, too high. What Jesus was getting at and I think what James is getting at is that anything less than your whole heart is, is not 
enough. That's his point throughout the letter. We cannot come to God with divided hearts. He said it in chapter 1. You, you pray, but you come with a divided heart and you expect to receive. And here's the thing. You read verse 18 and you understand that this verse puts us all in a, a predicament, doesn't it? It puts us, all of us in a position that ought to wipe out all smug self-sufficiency from our lives, even the self-sufficiency we sometimes feel in our walk with Christ because we, none of us, have ever lived a single day loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not a single day where we have sought Him as we should, loved our families, loved the church, loved the lost as we should. Not a single day where we haven't missed opportunities to do the good that He's called us to do. This verse reminds us we are all of us more sinful than we could possibly ever comprehend. But, this is the but for James. Remember 4 verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James is trying to humble us in this passage. It's what he's doing in this verse. He's inviting us to acknowledge our need. The one who knows the good he should do and does not do it, for him it is sin. And that includes all of us. Missed opportunities this last week. We know it. You know it in your heart. You need him. You need help. We need grace. Jesus is the only one who perfectly walked the path of righteousness. He's the only one who lived perfectly with an eternal perspective who, Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's the only one who lived with a submitted heart, submit, submitted plans to the Father's will, who perfectly meant, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And you know what was part of this joy set before him? The redemption of sinful men and women like you and me. He loves us despite us. And it's amazing today that he's actually calling us to follow him. As Peter said, what would he want from us? Why would he take any pleasure in our lives? And yet he's got good works prepared for us to do. And he gives us the grace we need because he is faithful the grace we need to walk with Him, even though we do walk bumbling and stumbling as toddlers. And so our response today to this passage is quite simple. It's the only response that makes sense. It's to bring your weakness, bring your burdens, bring your sin, bring your struggle. And trust His grace. Trust His grace and then go again. That's the privilege that we have. That's the responsibility that we have. And maybe you've never done this before. Maybe you've lived your whole life self-sufficient, self-sovereign. Today is a chance to humble yourself before God, to trust in Christ to save you. And I would urge you not to delay, for you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Let's pray. Father, we we are, are sorry, Lord, for the, the ways every day that we are self-sufficient and, 
and how we act in pride, how we speak with pride in our hearts, how we look at tomorrow with pride. Lord, I pray that you would do what you need to do to to break that self-sufficiency in our hearts, to bring us to the place of reliance upon you. Lord, many of us, we do. We look over the the past few years or the past few weeks or few months or few days or whatever it is, Lord, we look back and, and things have happened that we would not have chosen for ourselves. We sometimes don't know what you are doing. But Lord, we, we want to humble our hearts. We want to thank you that you are sovereign. We want to thank you, Lord, that you break our plans. Because we know that your plans are better anyway. We know that you are loving and that you are kind. We are sorry for the ways that we don't trust your love. I don't have faith in your goodness. So Lord, I pray that you give us hearts that are humble today. To trust you for the week ahead, for our days ahead. Father, as we leave, we we want to do the good that you have prepared for us. We want to share our faith. We want to encourage one another. We want to love our families well. We want to love our co-workers well. And we need your grace. So I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us grace. And Lord, we thank you for the mission that you have for us this week. Amen.